All right. All right. That is our dream. It's our dream that we aspire to at City Life. I will say in the first service when we got to the part about we have a dream of eating together, I got some amens on that part. You apparently aren't quite as excited about that, but we will be fulfilling that portion of the dream today after today's service. We have a dream. It's a dream of very beautiful things in this church. It's an aspirational dream. It is a vision statement. It's what we hope God will do. It's a picture of the kingdom that God is forming in us and that we seek and we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. This is a dream that cannot be accomplished by our own political agendas. It's a dream that can't be accomplished by our own skills. It's a dream that we can't accomplish in our own human strength. It's a dream that is rooted in God's word and that only God can bring about in his time as he is lifted up as the center and the focus of who we are and our identity as his people. So today, we are going to be starting with a passage of scripture that begins in Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And we're just going to be digging in into some Old Testament stuff today. For those of you who are visiting today, welcome. I'm Pastor Christy. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I'm so glad that you came today. And today's a different kind of a passage that we're looking at. Some, a lot of times in a day like today, we'll go for a passage that's, well, interesting. This one's a little strange. It's a little bit of a strange passage that will be in, in Exodus and in the book of Numbers today. But in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel had been newly freed from being enslaved in the country of Egypt. And they had gotten free. They were experiencing new life, and everything was great. They were so excited. They literally ran for their lives from the country of Egypt, and God was leading them through his leader Moses to a place called the Promised Land, and they were so happy to finally be free. So they ran from Egypt, and they're happy, they're excited, they're saying, God is good, we're heading toward the promised land, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, which was a way of saying it's a great place, and it, it was a, a type of Eden, almost, that they were going to. Beautiful, lush, rich goodness awaited them. And that enthusiasm lasted for about two seconds, and it doesn't take long, before the stress and the worries and the struggles of the journey became burdensome to them. And so, by the time we come to where they are, here in the, in the middle of the book of Exodus, the people are located in the wilderness, in a desert area, an arid place where things don't grow. They're exposed to outside threats. Anybody can come and attack them at any time. They have, there's very little natural food or water. And to make matters worse, they're camping and that's enough to send anybody into a downward spiral and because that's how people traveled back then through camping. And after three weeks of, of camping, three weeks, which is, as, that's as long as I've ever camped in my life. I married into camping and three weeks is, is about the max that I've ever had. But after about three weeks of camping, they end up at the foot of Mount Sinai, the foot of a mountain. And at this place, Moses, their leader, says, hey, all the people, you stay down here at the foot of the mountain. I'm going to go up the mountain and meet with God. You know, this God who just delivered you out of Egypt and rescued you out of slavery. I'm going to go up on this mountain and have a meeting with him. You stay here. So he left the people there. He took his assistant Joshua. He left Joshua at the foot of the mountain. Then Moses ascended Mount Sinai to go and have a meeting with God. And it was a very long, long <laughs> meeting a long meeting. It lasted 40 days, which is a long time if you're the one who's left behind waiting. 
It's a long time when you're the one who's not in charge, and you don't exactly know what's going to happen, and you're just hanging out. And the people decided it's too long of a time. And so they gave up on waiting, and they said, we don't know what happened to this Moses fellow. He's out of sight, out of mind. This whole God thing, like in Egypt, you could actually see the gods that the Egyptians worshipped because they were statues, and like we'd bow down to the statues. This God is invisible, and you know, he's, I don't know we don't know what we think about him. And so they said, let's, let's get a better God like what the Egyptians had. So while Moses is gone, the people go to the second in command, Aaron, and they say, we want a God like what the Egyptians had. So they take, Moses, Aaron says, fine, give me all of your gold jewelry, give me all your gold articles. They, they gather up a bunch of the gold that they have, they melt it down, they pour it into a mold, and they make a golden calf. And this becomes the God that they worship. Meanwhile, Moses is up on here on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments in the Book of the Law from the Lord. And while he and God are doing this like really amazing moment, the Lord says to him, okay, Moses, it's time for you to go back down the mountain because your people who you brought out of Egypt, they have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I told them to do. They made themselves an idol that cast in the shape of a calf. They're sacrificing to it and they're saying that's their God. And the Lord says to Moses, I've seen these people and they are stiff-necked. And that's the Bible's way of saying they're obstinate. They're difficult. If you've ever had a stiff neck, how do you move? You know, it hurts, so you, you, got, you turn like this, right? He, he says they're, they're obstinate. They're difficult to lead. I've seen them, and they're a problem. And then the Lord says to Moses, now, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I'll destroy them. And God says, I'll save you, Moses, but I'm going to destroy those people. M Moses is understandably alarmed. He takes the two stone tablets that God had written on, God had inscribed on those two stone tablets with his very own finger, and Moses comes down the mountain with these tablets in hand, and he picks up Joshua along the way. They make their way back to the camp, and as they get closer to the camp, they hear some sounds. And Joshua says, Moses, I, I think there's the sound of war in the camp. And Moses says, and this is in Exodus 32, Moses says, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. And as they approach the camp, they get closer. They see the calf. They see the dancing. They see the worship. They see that the Lord God had been left behind, and instead what had been centered in their community was this idol. Moses, it says his anger burned. And it says he took the tablets and he threw them out of his hands, breaking them into pieces and he took the calf they had made, burned it in the fire, he ground it to powder, scattered the powder on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. That's a sermon for another day. <laughs> Moses saw, in Exodus 32, it says Moses saw the people were running wild. These, these are people who, they're just experiencing freedom. I mean, this whole freedom thing's new. They haven't yet learned how to live as free people. They haven't yet learned that true freedom only exists as we have proper boundaries in our lives, as we have boundaries that are in, in line with God's authority in our lives. So Exodus 32 says, Moses saw the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So, so the enemy countries that are around them that are kind of watching this massive group of people traveling into the wilderness, the, the, and they're kind of trying to figure out what's going on, the enemies are like, these, these Israelites, they, do, they are kind of a mess right now. We could easily attack them. 
The, so, so the Israelites are, are vulnerable. There's chaos. There's disorder. They're a laughing stock. They're vulnerable. They're, they're, they're out of control. They're running wild. They're, they're powerless. They've put their hope in a powerless God that is absolutely no use to them. And they've turned their back on the one who is. These are, these are all the, the symptoms of what's wrong. But I would suggest to you that the, the bigger problem is that they don't have the presence of God. They don't have God with them right now. And when God sees all this chaos, he tells Moses, I'm too angry. How they are is, is so offensive to my holiness, I can't be here. And he tells Moses, I'm going to send my angel to lead them. I can't do it. In fact, he specifically says, tell the Israelites, you are a, he says, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you for even a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So we have this holy God who says, I want to be with you, and I want to be with your God. But there are some limits here. And I think often we are like the Israelites, where we see concerning symptoms in our lives. Maybe chaos has broken out. And, and we recognize our lives are, are disordered. Maybe there's a vulnerability to people who are out to get us. Maybe we're running wild. We're just outside of, of God's boundaries. We're, we're outside of really what God wants for us. And if we were honest with ourselves, we'd be like, yeah, running wild could kind of describe my life right now. Maybe we're in a place of disorder and powerlessness. And, and sometimes I think we see these symptoms and we get worried about the symptoms when the bigger problem is that we don't have the presence of God. The bigger problem is God's not in the middle of our lives. So the book of Exodus ends. The, the, the whole Ten Commandments thing happens in about halfway through the book. The rest of the book of Exodus is all about specifics that God gives to the Israelites on, on how they're supposed to get his presence into the camp. And he says, this is the thing. I need to come and be with you. I need to live among you because it's not working for me to be like up on a mountain or in a cloud. I need to be like in your community. And so what he does is he says, just like how you're traveling in tents right now, I, need, I want you to make a tent for me. Now, later in the Old Testament, you'll read about in the times of the kings, they, they replace the tent called it the tabernacle. They replace it with the temple, which is a permanent building made out of stone and, and all that. But, but before they do that, while they're in this traveling phase of Israel history, God travels in a tent just like the people do. And so he gives this tent, and he says, this is how you're supposed to make the tent. These are the dimensions of the tent. This is what they're made out of. Use these kinds of skins of animals. Make this kind of furniture. This is the kind of incense you're supposed to burn. And here are all the rules of how it gets set up and how you arrange the furniture in, in the place. And here's who gets to go in and who doesn't get to go in. And here are the washings and ceremonial things you need to do. And so he gives all of these instructions. And the book of Exodus ends with the completion of the tabernacle. And in the presence of God, who had been in a, for the Israelites in a pillar of smoke, descends into the tabernacle. And it says, the glory of the Lord filled the place. 
the Shekinah glory filled, the presence of God's glory filled this place. And God put himself among his people. He said, I, I want to move in. I want to be close to you. God's image, his, his practice from the very beginning of creating humanity was to be close to people. God wanted that from the very beginning. It's why he created us. It's why he, and, and he set aside this whole uh, rescue plan to rescue us from the fall and from sin. It's why he eventually sent Jesus. God wants to be close to us. And God is saying to them in this moment, I keep wanting to keep you close and you keep forgetting, you keep being impatient, you keep being stiff-necked, you're not waiting long enough, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move in, and I'm going to tabernacle among you, right in the middle. And this is how the book of Exodus ends, with God in the middle. So when we come to two books over, the book of Numbers, that's where our, our sermon series is going to focus for the next few weeks, in the book of Numbers, we have in the book of Numbers this picture of a God who is among his people, a God who's in the middle of what they are going through. I want to encourage you over this, the next month or so to read the book of Numbers. Re read through it. It's, uh, I forget how many chapters it is, but, but read through that book sometime this month and get, a, get an overview of where we're going. We'll be covering that in the next few weeks. So at this point in the book of Numbers, the, the Israelites had bent, they had gotten the tabernacle, they'd gotten all the pieces, they'd gotten it all set up, they'd been at the, at the bottom of Mount Sinai for about a year, and God was teaching them, this is how you are to live as freed people. These are the boundaries I'm establishing for you. This is what it means to be in my holy presence. So they'd been here for about a year, and that the time comes for them to pick up and take their next steps. It's the start of a whole new journey. It's a whole new starting place with God in the center. In the book of Numbers, there are three geographic locations that we'll be talking about more and more over the next couple weeks. So let me just briefly touch on those a minute. There are three places you should know about for the book of Numbers. The first is Mount Sinai, the mountain called Sinai. The second place that a lot of the, the book of Numbers takes place in are the, is the desert of Paran, the wilderness or the desert of Paran. So it's, this is wasteland, this is arid, dried places. And then the final place, the book of Numbers ends with the people on the plains of Moab. They're overlooking this area of Moab, and they're very, very close to the promised land at this point. So the book of Numbers journeys with the people through this map. And uh, so they, there's Mount Sinai, then there's stuff that happens along the way to Paran, there's stuff that happens in Paran, and stuff that happens on the way to the plains. And, and that's where this book is going. It covers a 38-year period of their travel in the wilderness. They've got the presence of God with them. They're ready to leave Mount Sinai. They're ready to go on this journey with God. They're at a new moment. And so today, we're looking at Numbers chapters 1 through 4. And kind of the funny thing about this is it's kind of a funny passage, and it's not very interesting. It's kind of a boring passage about logistics and numbers and information it, it tells us some, some about some structures, and you're not going to read it and say, oh, that's a very inspiring verse of scripture. You're going to read it, and you're think, why are we talking about this today? But I believe that there's meaning and there's significance in the order and in the structures that God is setting up that can be encouraging for us today. So in Numbers 1 through 4, there are three major 
parts of the logistics. We're going to talk about the census, we're going to talk about priests and Levites, and we're going to talk about how to set up camp. This is basically a whole book of instructions right now. The Lord is saying to the people, okay, people, this is a new day. I am here with you. I am in the middle of your community, and now I need to get in order. I am holy. I I am dangerous. I I love you, but I'm holy and pure, and I require holiness and purity, and I will help you, but we need to get in order. And these are the orders. Here we are, Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Okay, so about one year into their journey. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men in Israel, 20 years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each the head of his family, is to help you. I'm not going to go into today about why they're only counting the men. Uh, It's patriarchal culture. That's the setting that we're in. We can talk about that another time. We have too many things to cover today. But the reason that we we call this book the book of numbers is because there's a lot of counting that goes on in this book. There are a lot of numbers. In fact, there's a census at the beginning of numbers and a census at the end of numbers. That's why we call it numbers. However, the Hebrew name for this Old Testament book, the Old Testament scroll, is the word bemidbar. They don't call it numbers. They call it bemidbar, which means in the wilderness. Let's read the book in the wilderness. Because this book is about journey through the dry places. This book It's about journeying through when things are arid and unwatered, when when things are unknown, when you're exposed, when you're vulnerable. This is a book about traveling through desert places, the Midbar. So in the first of this logistics, in in the census, do you see what God does with the census? He says, count the people, but he says before you can count them, I want you to gather them up By what? By their clans and families. He says, I want you to list every man by name. So he takes the whole group of people, and he says, okay, now, your relatives, you relative group, you go over here. Oh, your relatives, you go over here. Oh, you go with that family? Okay, you go with with this family group, and you're finding your first and your second and your third and your fourth cousins and those twice removed and whatever, and you're finding your people. You're getting put in your clans. uh, He's putting families back together again. He's reminding them of their roots and which tribes they are connected to and what their heritage is. And the part of the purpose of this is to help them identify their family belonging in the place of God's family. It's also a military roster to equip them for battle, to strengthen them, to help them organize to protect themselves. The census also shows that the people have multiplied, like a lot, like rabbits. I mean, there's a lot of multiplication that's happened here. If you look at earlier numbers in the Bible, uh, back in Exodus, they they were a significant group, but still significantly smaller than they are now. And this multiplication thing is important because generations ago, the people of Israel weren't so numerous. In fact, there's a a picture on the screen behind me. This is uh, part of the artwork that we have on the walls of our building. If if you're new to City Life, we have 12 pieces of artwork around the sanctuary. They begin here in Genesis, 
and go around the church this way, ending with Revelation, there, it depicts 12 major stories of the big story of Scripture. And this was the artist's rendering of Abraham and Sarah being called by God to go out by faith into a future of following God. And it shows them going out, not knowing where they're going, all alone. They, and you can see they're elderly. They had no children at that point. And the Lord speaks to them and says, I am going to bless you. I am going to make you, old people, into a great nation. I will bless you and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And so there's this promise that they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. There would be generations upon generations that would come from them. And before that, generations before this with Abraham and Sarah, generations before that, back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and he told them, he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. There would be future generations that would be coming. See, God has always been interested in human flourishing. He's interested in our well-being, in goodness for us, peace on earth, goodwill toward us. God is interested in our having fullness of life. That's what he has wanted since Eden to the time of Abraham when he enacted his rescue plan to today. And God has always required holiness. He's wanted goodness and flourishing and blessing. And he's always communicated that the way we get it is through his boundaries, through him, through his methods, and not through our own not-so-brilliant ideas like golden calves. So Israel is fulfilling these generational promises. They fulfilled Eden's call to be fruitful and multiply. They are fulfilling the promise of Abraham to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is a new day, a new generation. And the census is pointing out, look what God is doing. He is fulfilling what his promise of what he said he would do. He is fulfilling his promise to bring you into a place of flourishing and blessing. So the census calls them into order, calls them into organization, calls out leadership, and shows them the strength that he's been building up in them. That's the first logistic, is, is the census gets discussed in Numbers. The, the next thing that gets discussed in the book of Numbers is talking about a, a group of, one of the tribes uh, that bring up the, the Levites and the priests. So I'm going to talk about priests and Levites. Let me just pause for a minute and talk to you about where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. Perhaps you've heard that phrase, the 12 tribes of Israel. By this point in history, all of the people of Israel have, have come from one of 12 tribes. Each of those 12 tribes had an ancestor that was one of 12 original brothers. A second picture that we have is also on our wall over there. And sometimes sometime you should look at this a little bit more closely. It's really fun how the artists uh, imagined all of this. But there is Jacob, who is the patriarch of the whole group, and he had a variety of, of women that were part of having children. It's complicated, and also another sermon for another time. But with those women, there were a total of 12 children that were born. And you might recognize some of these names, like, uh, I should say not 12 children, 12 boy children, and then also some girls, which, again, don't count for the same reason that we just talked about a minute ago. Uh, do count, but you know what I mean. Because I don't have time to go into this. You're, under, you're with me? Okay. I feel like very aware of this dynamic. Like, we really should talk about some of these patriarchal culture things. We'll do that another time. Okay, so Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, 
These are all names that if you're familiar with the 12 tribes of Israel, you'll recognize these as the names of those tribes. Now, one of the children that was born was Joseph, and there is no tribe of Joseph, correct? There is no tribe of Joseph. And so that's another story, but at that point, uh, at one point in time, Jacob, the patriarch, says, Joseph, instead of you, I'm going to have my two grandsons. Your two sons are going to take your place, and you get a double portion in my inheritance. So what that means is we end up with 13 tribes that come out of this family, 13. So what's happening in this passage in Numbers right now is God is calling one of those tribes out from all of the others. He calls out the tribe of Levi, and he says, Levi, you're going to be set apart from all of the other 12 tribes. There are going to be the 12 tribes, and then there are going to be the Levites. You're going to be different. And he says, you are going to be, you, you are going to be the people who are called out for a special purpose for me. So let's look at how, at how God talks about this in Numbers chapter 1, verses 47 through 53. The Lord says, The families of the tribe of Levi, however, were not counted among the others. The Lord had said to Moses, You must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of my testimony, over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, they are to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. And whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who goes near it shall be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each man in his own camp under his own standard, like, like a flag. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the testimony so that wrath will not fall on the Israelites' community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the testimony. So basically, God is saying, this is the facilities and maintenance team. They're going to take care of the tent. When camping time comes, and we, it's time to pack up the tent, and it's time to take an, another step in our journey, all you families are going to pack up your tents, but the Levites have the job of packing up my tent. And the Levites carry my tent in a certain way. And the Levites set up my tent. The Levites do maintenance in my tent. The Levites serve my tent in a specific way. They protect it and they care for it. And then out of that, out of that group of Levites, God says, out of this group, I'm going to select the family of Aaron. And the family of Aaron are going to be the priests. So Aaron belongs to the Levites, but, but the priests are still separate from the Levites. That's why in the Bible you read about the priests and the Levites, because the Levites weren't exactly the same thing as the priests, but the priests came out of the Levite group. So in Numbers chapter 3, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. So out of the Levites, we have these priests that are called out. And there are three 
so th that's the priests. I, I, one more thing to say about the Levites. There were three groups within the Levites, and this is just kind of a fun detail that I think is interesting, but the, the division of labor was divided up among the, the, the three Levitical clans. There are three clans called Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the, the Levitical clan of Gershon, they would set up the, the tent and like the, the covering. This tent has a rain flap that goes over it to keep the rain out. The tabernacle had the same thing. And so, not that there was a lot of rain, but you know, to keep things out. And so there were, they took all the coverings and, and, and those cloths and uh, animal skins and that sort of thing. The, the group of Kohath, they took care of the most holy things, some of the sacred objects that were inside of the tabernacle. The, tribe of Mar the group of Merari, they took care of the tent stakes and the posts and the crossbeams and the bases and the frames. So it was all dividing up the labor so different groups would have different responsibilities. So we have here order out of chaos. We have God forming and bringing structure and bringing order out of chaos so that there's this little bit of beautiful flourishing that happens in the midst of the wilderness. So the we have the logistics of the sentence, we have the logistics of the priests and Levites. The third part of the logistics is how to set up camp. <laughs> how to set up camp. So God gives a description. He says, this is how we're going to set up camp. Now, I married into camping. I, th I think I mentioned that. I married into camping. It's not something that my parents who are here today, I love you mom and dad, but we did not go camping. Amen. That's right. <laughs> we went camping once, and we all remember it, and it was one night, and we never did it again. And so then when I married Adam and we didn't have any money and we wanted to celebrate our first wedding anniversary, we were like, well, I guess we can go camping because it costs like $10 so we can afford that. So we went camping. And actually, no, that was our honeymoon. Our honeymoon we went camping. We didn't have any money then either. And so what, but what we've what have learned is that especially when you've got a group of people that you're camping with, which now we do, that we have a family, you don't just say, okay, everybody's set up. Everybody gets a job. Everybody gets a task. You do this part, you do this part, you do that part, and you break it up. And so this is what's going on. And God says, I want you to set up camp, and this is how I want you to do it. Whenever our family gets to a camping place, I know it is not my job to decide where the tent goes. That is Adam's job. I stay out of that. He decides exactly where the tent goes. Now, the, the camping plots may be only as big as this part of the stage, but, you know, it makes a difference in if the tent goes here, if the tent goes here, and he cares about this sort of stuff, so I let him do his thing. And he tells us, this is where we put up the tent, this is where we put the stakes, and that's what we do. Similarly, God is saying, this is how we're going to set up camp. There's a right way to do it. And it's a way that's going to bring order. There's a way that will bring goodness, a way that will bring flourishing, a way that will bring protection, a way that will bring elevation of me as the most important thing in your life right now. And so there's, there are detailed instructions about how to set up camp. I'm just going to read three verses. We're not going to read all the details because there are a lot of details. Numbers chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. On the east, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashan, son of Aminadab, dot, dot, dot. It goes on and on and on. And so what he says is, in the middle goes the tabernacle, my presence. And then he says, from a distance, around it, are, right outside the entrance, are the priests. And then encircling that are the Levites. 
And then the next ring, the next ring of concentric circles, is then the 12 tribes of Israel go. And then it's broken down in lots and lots of detail. This group goes here, this group goes there. You can read all about it. You'll see it's all spelled out. And there are three that are on the north side of the tabernacle, three that are on the south side, three that are on the east, and three that are on the west. In fact, here's a picture of how, how it, kind of a chart of how it was laid out. You can see the tabernacle in the middle. You see Gershom, Merari, and Kohath surrounding the tabernacle. Those are the groups of the Levites. Moses and the priests are at the front entrance. And then the 12 tribes broken up in that way with the tabernacle in the middle. I find it interestingly interesting that there are similar, there's a similar design to these concentric circles in another part of Scripture. Just as the tabernacle is in the center with the presence of God. So, in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was also arranged in concentric circles, with the presence of God represented in the tree of life. And for those of you who have studied this, do you remember where the tree of life is located? In the center of the garden. And then Adam and Eve are given the garden to tend. And the, the, what they are supposed to do is they are to work and to keep the garden. The same phrase, work and keep, is used of the priests and the Levites here in this, part of the, in, in this book of Numbers, where the priests and the Levites are to work and to keep the tabernacle, just as Adam and Eve were to work and to keep the Garden of Eden. And then outside the Garden of Eden, there's chaos. We know because they get banished out of the garden at one point, and that there's chaos. And in the, so in the midst of this chaos, there's been this Edenic, this Eden that has been formed by the presence of God with God at the center. And here we have, too, the presence of God in the center of the wilderness, holding the people together, creating this sense of, of Eden and flourishing and new life. God is in the middle. A new beginning with God in the middle. Now here we are, we're, we're a year, about a year, just a little over a year, out of them leaving from Egypt. The people are at this new place. They're ready, they've, they've kind of regrouped, they've gotten some instructions, they are ready to leave the, the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're ready to begin their journey through the rest of the book of Numbers. And you need to know, this is a new generation. The parents, they've had babies since this point, they've been here for a little over a year, they're, they're raising children in a new way. They're having babies who are growing up not enslaved like their parents were. These babies who are growing up hearing about the mighty acts of God who've delivered them. Babies who are growing up with the Ten Commandments. Babies who are growing up without a memory of Egypt in their hearts. It's a new beginning with a new generation, with God in the middle. And just like Eden was the creation of order and beauty out of chaos, this tabernacle brings order and beauty out of the wilderness. Just like Eden was an oasis of life in the midst of chaos, so the Israelite community becomes a little Eden centered around God in the midst of barren wilderness. In Eden, people were created to rule and to have authority. And here in the book of Numbers, this new community with its new beginnings, with its new center in God, is being formed and disciplined and organized according to the ways of God, according to God's purposes, so that they too can rule and have authority, fulfilling what God created humanity to have. This is what happens 
when God is in the middle. When God is in the place that he needs to be, when God is in the center of our lives, when he is in the middle, when we arrange our whole lives around God in the middle, we can flourish. We can have harmony with God. We can experience his goodness and his beauty and the depths of the shalom, the peace, the completeness, the wholeness that God has for us. God in the middle. We're walking through all kinds of wildernesses, church. You've got your deserts, I've got mine. Our country has its deserts, our politics has its deserts, our community has its deserts. We've, we've got our deserts. But there's an opportunity for a new beginning with God in the middle. Now, from this point on, since they've got God in the middle, does everything go great? No, there's actually still 38 more years of wandering. They're going to have lots of problems. But they are set up. They are set up with what they need to be able to come back and to get in alignment with God again. God in the middle. You know, today, Fall Fest, is typically a day when we would take some extra time to talk about who City Life is. I think City Life is a beautiful church. I think we're kind of a different church. I think we're kind of quirky. I've never been to a church kind of like City Life. We're, we're weird sometimes. And we just, we seek to embrace that. It's hard being church community anywhere, not just here, anywhere. And often this would be a day when I would talk about some of the vision that God's given us. I'd talk about that dream statement. If we have a dream for a church for these things. And that's good, and it's good to talk about those things. It's good to have a picture of the kingdom in our hearts. But instead of focusing on the beauty of that vision today, I wanted to focus on a Numbers chapters 1 through 4 kind of message today. There's all the, there's all the flourishing that we want. Those are the symptoms. Those are the symptoms that we want. But it comes, it only comes, when we have God in the middle. And we have to have our priority in order. And I say priority because there's only one, and that is God. And God isn't really interested in being at the back of your life. He's not really interested in you shoving him off to the side and then pulling him, pulling him back into place, you know, just on Sundays when you're at church. He... He wants to be in the center. He wants to be in the middle. And he wants to be in the middle of this church. It is good. We do have a dream for those addicted to, to substances to experience true freedom and recovery. We do, and we, we have testimony of that. We do have a dream for healing. We do have a, a dream for wholeness and mental health. We do, as long as God stays in the middle. We do have a dream for racial unity at City Life, as long as God stays in the middle. We have a dream for a multi-ethnic church, but we want God in the middle. We want economic justice. We want those who are poor to flourish, to be bound up, for the brokenhearted to be bound up. And, and as great as these things are, the, the priority is we want God in the middle because it's too easy to do justice without Jesus. It's too easy to do good without God. 
We try to do these things through our own wisdom, through our own intelligence, through our own political efforts, through our own actions. But we have to have God in the middle because that's what orders us toward his kingdom. We can want the right things and go about it in the wrong way. But God being in the middle keeps us ordered and under his authority. It lets him lead and show us the way forward. That's the kind of church that I want City Life to be. We are going to wander in and out of that middle. We're going to shove God off and forget, and then we're going to bring him back and say, okay, God, sorry, let's, let's get back. We're, we're going to mess it up. Because if, if you haven't read the Bible, God's community from Old Testament to New Testament is kind of a mess. They're kind of always a mess. There's one really sweet chapter, two, maybe two chapters in the book of Acts where the church is looking really good. And the rest of it's kind of a disaster all the time. But the message is that God came to us. God came to put his tabernacle among us to be with us, to make it possible for us to come to him, for us to center him, for us to put him in the middle of our lives. He came so that he could help us find that putting him as the priority will prioritize and order everything else in our lives. Putting him in the middle will put all of our chaos into order. It will subject our conflicts. It will subject our oppression and our vulnerability under the authority of God, and he will make a way for a new life for us. I want that for our church. And I want it for our individual lives, too. I want it for your life. And I wonder, what is center in your life right now? What is in the middle of your life? What consumes your thoughts? What is the subject of your anxieties? What is the thing that you are hotly pursuing right now? Does it involve having God in the middle? Is God in the middle of your work life? Are you being asked to compromise at work? Is God in the middle? Is God in the middle of your witness at work? Is God in the middle of your marriage? Christian couples, it is easy to assume and to take for granted that God is part of your marriage, but is he? It's easy to drift apart. Is God in the middle of your marriage? Is God in the middle of your family life and how you engage with your family? You you want God in the middle so that you're tripping over him in the middle of your life and you can't get to your kid unless you go through the middle of God first. That's what we're looking for here. Is God in the middle of your money? Is he going to trip you up because you have to go through God before you make decisions about how you spend your finances? Is God in the middle of your dating life? There's an old joke that talks about if, you, that, uh, if, a man and, if you're walking together with the person that you're dating, then uh, if you can fit a Bible in between you, then you're okay. <laughs> Maybe that's not so bad. Is God in the middle? Is God in the middle of your dating life? Is God in the middle of your speech? Is God in the middle of your opinions about church? Is God in the middle of your opinions about church community? Community is great, but God has to be the first one. If God's lifted up, he's going to bring the community together. If God's lifted up, he'll unite people who are different from each other. If God is in the middle, he will bring unity. And I'd suggest to you that if God is not in the middle, something else is. And I want to invite you to simply close your eyes wherever you're sitting and reflect for a moment. What is in the middle of your life right now? Is God 
ordering your path? Is God leading you? Are your purposes and your heart and your intentions and your efforts and your work and your labor, are they all within the purpose God has? Are you going through God? Or is there something else that's driving you? And maybe God's not in the middle. He's pushed off to the right or pushed off to the left. And the Lord is saying to you today, I, I want to be in that place of authority in your life. I want to be right in the middle of your life so that you can't help but fall over me with whatever you do. The Lord is saying, I want to be the king of your life. I want to lead your life because only goodness, only flourishing will come from that. And if you want to just tell the Lord today, God, I, I'm, you've not been in the middle. I want you to be in the middle. And Lord Jesus, we pray to you right now. We just say, there have been some other things that have competed with priority. There have been some other things that have competed with my priority of what I want in church. And I hold those out before you, God, and I've had other things at the center. Jesus, I want you to be in the middle, the, middle, the center of my life, the thing that my livelihood revolves around, the thing that my being revolves around. God, I want you to have first place in my life. I want you to be my priority. God, I want you to help me tr fall over you every time I try to do something. Let you be in my way. Guide me. Lead me. Be my king. Be my God. Thank you for being present among me. Amen. In the New Testament, Jesus said that he was the word. And the scripture in John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word there, the Greek word is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Jesus came to this earth as a human, 100% God, 100% human. He came to tabernacle because God has always sought to be with us from the very beginning. And Jesus came so that he could tabernacle among us and be in the middle of our lives. The scripture says, we have seen his glory. We have seen his Shekinah, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, Jesus has come to be with us and he wants to be with you and he wants you to be with him.